we're hardwired to belong. There is something down deep seated within every one of us that wants to uh, be a part of something that is greater than ourselves, that expands beyond our horizons, that is, we want to be a part of, of something meaningful, something a, a cause, a, a community of people united around some something. We're hardwired for that. It's why you see in, in the hearts of the, of the inner city young men who don't have any strong male figure in their lives gravitating, though destructive, they know it to be a lifestyle in the gangs. It's why you see in the suburbs other folks gravitate towards participating and volunteering in certain civic organizations because it's just wrong to be a part of something. It's why you see people from all sides, all walks of life, when, when disaster hits a certain community, everyone's rallying to coming alongside and clean up and help and, and all of that because we are hardwired to belong. The gospel, the good news of the gospel, is that the one true king has come and is coming to reclaim and renew all that is his, which, by the way, as a parenthetical, is all that there is. He is good King Richard coming back to Britain to dethrone the evil Prince John. He is Prince Caspian leading the insurrection of the Narnians to overthrow the wicked King Miraz. But in this case, this king, this king is not a figure of fiction. This is King Jesus, the risen, ruling King Every bit as real in time and space as you and I are this morning. He has come. The bugle has sounded. The horn has been blown. And the summons has been given by this king. Come, follow me. Now what would it look like to follow that summons? What would it look like to follow such a king? That's where our text takes us this morning. Philippians 1. Wrapping up the first chapter of this letter that we know as the book of Philippians. It is the letter of Paul to the Philippians, the church in mid-first century Philippi. Philippians 1. So if you've got a Bible, please now turn there. Um, that is after the Gospels and after the book of Acts, and after Romans and the Corinthian letters and Galatians and Ephesians, prior to Colossians, you have Philippians, Philippians 1. Now I'm going to pick up right where we left off a couple weeks ago. Um, we have been, Paul has done the standard greeting uh, there in verses 1 and 2, then verses uh, 3 through 11, he lays out before his readers his heart's burden for them, in particular as expressed in how he's praying for them. Then in verses 12 and uh, through 18, rather, he is giving an update in terms of things going on with him and how he is responding and engaging to those things as hard as they were. Then he begins to move from there in verses uh, 18 and following on down to verse 26, and this is what we looked at two weeks ago, his perspective, taking a step back, his perspective on all of life and that stunning assertion that he 
he makes there in verse 21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And that's where we were a couple weeks ago. And now, and now because uh, Paul is he's there uh, imprisoned in Rome, shackled to a member of the Praetorian Guard awaiting trial before Caesar, he thinks likely that he will survive this and return to them and they will see one another again, but he doesn't know that for sure. He doesn't know that for sure. And so with that in mind, what he's about to say is, whatever happens, however th things go for me, this is what I long to see in you. Okay, with that in mind, here we are. Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would bless this study of your word. We can read it. We can hear it. But Lord, we long to truly see it and listen and feel and respond. May that be what's happening in these next few minutes. That you would help us to truly, by the working of your Spirit in our hearts, truly, truly would we be engaging and be engaged by Paul's words, the, the apostle, the spokesman, the mouthpiece of you, our King, Lord Jesus, And Lord, where we find ourselves troubled by what we're hearing here, then may we hear the thing that we sung and prayed just a few minutes ago, bid our anxious fears goodbye. Calm us, we pray. Help us to grapple with these things. They are stirring, and we need to be stirred. And so we entrust this time to you. Amen. The Man Without a Country. It is a short story written, uh, it appeared first in the Atlantic, uh, December 1863, penned by Edward Everett Hale. It is the fictional account of the American soldier, Lieutenant Philip Nolan, who renounces his citizenship and a sentence is pronounced upon him, exile, where he will spend the rest of his days at sea and will never hear any mention of his country, the United States, ever again. Let me recap it for you. Uh, it's historical fiction, by the way, so while Philip Nolan is fictional, Aaron Burr was not. So here's how the story plays out. Aaron Burr, when he is on trial for treason, uh, Philip Nolan is also put on trial as an accomplice. And uh, in the course of his testimony, he bitterly renounced his country 
angrily shouting out before the whole court, I wish I may never hear of the United States again. Now, the time period, though it was written in 1863, the time period is around the turn of, well, the beginning of the 19th century. So in that courtroom, there are many Revolutionary War veterans. To make such a statement, well, really, in any context, you would hope that would be shocking and offensive, but it certainly was then. It certainly was then in that setting. So the judge, shocked at this, decides to grant Nolan his wish. He's going to spend the rest of his life aboard U.S. Navy warships, going from port to port, transferred from ship to ship, with never a right in the rest of his days to ever set foot on American soil again, and strict orders being given to all the sailors with whom he comes into contact to never mention his country at all. The man without a country. What does that have to do with our text? Citizenship matters. Citizenship matters. Where is our primary allegiance? Where is, what is, who is our identity? How do we think of ourselves? Philippi, you may remember this from weeks ago when we first began this series. Philippi was a Roman colony. That meant everyone who lived there was a Roman citizen. They were on the rolls back at Rome. They had all the legal positions and privileges of everyone else back there in the capital city of Rome. And Paul knows that, and Paul is pressing in on that very thing here in our text. Again, he doesn't know for sure if he's going to return to them or if he's going to remain there in Rome. Um, and so he says what he does. I'm going to start reading the first half of verse 27 here. He says, this is why he says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only. So, no matter how this goes, no matter how things turn out, no matter whether I stay or, or come back, do this. So whatever the this is, is something of heightened importance. Of, it's of the, 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 the highest priority, what he's about to say. Now what is that that he says? Well, the ESV translates it, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I love the ESV, but a better way of translating that here would be this. And it's in the footnote, if that's your translation, roughly this. Live as citizens. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, Paul is tapping into this mentality of his readers, grabbing hold of that and, and, and help wanting them to grapple with what does it mean and who are you? Who are you? Where is your citizenry? Live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. By live as worthy, no, that doesn't mean make yourself worthy. It doesn't mean strive and labor and work painfully towards something that you're trying to secure, but no, it means rather to live out of the deep relief and profound gratitude that comes from knowing what's been secured for you, your citizenry in God's city. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or if I can put it this way, we are citizens. Paul is saying we are citizens of another city. And that demands a new way of living in this city. We are citizens of another city. And that demands a new way, a radical, a completely different way of living in this city. And in two ways, he presses on that here in verses 27 through 30. Two ways, and this new way of living in this city demands seeing a need for unity 
and hearing the call to courage. Seeing the need for unity, that's the first point, and the second one being hearing the call to courage. That is what he says are ch is of the chief importance only, however things go. Live this way. This is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. So firstly, the need for unity. Verse 27. I'm going to read it again, the whole thing. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You can't miss this. I mean, phrase after phrase. It's like body blow after body blow. I mean, he's hitting you with the need to see the need for unity. Those of you who have read ahead into this letter, or remember if you've ever studied the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, you know that he's about to really press there in chapter 2. He's beginning it, really beginning it. It's something he's alluded to already with their partnership in the gospel and everything else that he said in the that opening introduction, but he's building, building here, and we'll, Lord willing, talk about that, begin to talk about that next week. So, but he begins with this, what I'll call a call to arms. Uh, he's using a metaphor here, a battlefield uh, metaphors imagery here that would have resonated with his readers. By the way, and I say that because Philippi was not just a Roman colony. It was, can you identify with this? A military town. Philippi was a military town occupied by no few active duty Roman soldiers and veterans, retired. That's what this makes up this town, Philippi. So they get, when he's using military language and imagery, they're, oh, are they going to get it? Oh, are they going to grasp exactly where he's, he's going with this? But it's not that he's just messing with them. It's not just that he's playing around with images, but rather he's grabbing hold of a metaphor of something that is true. He's using this physical imagery to speak of a of spiritual realities, that there is, in fact, a battle. There is, in fact, a battlefield. There is, in fact, a fight, a war. I, there's so, hence this call to arms and this call to fight as one. Because there is this common enemy, this one who desires and, and it continues the, the Satan to press and to probe and to look up and down on the line for the weaknesses and to find them and exploit them. And so the line has to be held, standing firm, right? The, the language that he uses here, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. New Testament scholars will tell you, yeah, that's exactly the kind of language that he's using here. Or you could think not just defensively, but offensively. There's this He's actually tapping into the image of Roman legionnaires. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of this artist's depictions of the way they would move across the battlefield, almost like part infantry, part armor. So you've got the, the soldiers in the front with the big shields held out strong in front and all of them behind with the shields up above their heads. Moving, moving, moving. Moving, advancing across that field. Hold the line. Hold the line. Stand together as one. You can't miss this. And there's a common cause here as well. Paul says that at the end of verse 27. For the faith of the gospel. For the faith of the gospel. Now, 
If you go back, and, and you should read this, I could not highly recommend If you're doing a study in the book of Philippians, go back and read Acts 16, the historical account of the founding of that church. And when you do that, you see there were varying needs of this group of people met in the varying ways that the gospel intersects to human needs. For instance, you've got a, 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 a merchant Struggling, if you read between the lines, at her intellectual questions and the things that she's wrestling with. Or a slave girl, once possessed by a demon, deep psychological scars that have to be addressed here. Then you've got a, the, the moral questions and struggles of a jailer and all that his career had entailed. And all of that, all those varying needs, real human needs, met by this one balm. This one cure, this one hope, the gospel. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They're one. Despite all that might have, you know, here's a merchant, here's a slave girl, and here's a jailer, all, and they're representing, those are just three people representative of the whole of the church and all their varying backgrounds and needs, and they're one. One. The point being that this new way of living, what citizenry in this, this new citizenry in this heavenly city, Christ's city, means in terms of living it out in this city, the first thing has to do with hearing, seeing the need for unity. Satan, let me put it this way, is a vandal. Think about vandalism, what, what that means. It's such a waste, right? It's so... It's just so pointless. It's the ultimate not constructive. Energy's wasted. Uh, I, I could have looked up and read and bored you through stories of, you know, art galleries that are defaced because of, you know, somebody takes a, a utility knife and runs it up a canvas of some kind or somebody spray paints some famous statue and, you know, you read stories like that. Some of you have experienced vandalism, right? You had your house rolled. It's a low grade, right? Or, or, I mean, I remember years ago, I parked my 65 Mustang out in front of somebody's house, was there for a few hours at night, came back, and somebody had bananaed my windshield. That's worse than the museum artwork. It's a 60, anyway. Um, it's so pointless. It's so stupid. It's such a waste. It's, well, Satan is a vandal. He desires, he delights in defacing any and everything that brings honor and glory to Christ. He delights therein to destroy, to, seed the, to, to sow the seeds of unrest amidst God's people. To destroy the unity. You see, God delights to bring people together. Satan then delights in ripping us apart. He is a vandal. Now, where does this battle then rage? Everywhere that the gospel is meant to shine through in human relationships. Well, where might that be? Can you think of an exception? I don't really... I mean, in churches, of course. In ministries, of course. On the mission field, I've been on the Peacemaker Ministries website, and they have 
a whole manual written for mission teams so that in the weeks leading up to that and the weeks that they're on, away on the foreign soil, they don't find themselves torn apart by infighting. It's wise. It probably didn't come out of nowhere, the idea for that manual. So churches and ministries and mission fields, but marriages and families and friendships. These are all soft targets for this vandal. And we cannot, any of us, as you're thinking maybe, some of you are thinking, oh my God, literally, I know. Some of you are thinking, though, eh, I'm good. Oh, I, 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 I quiver for you. I fear for you and your complacency. Do not ever think, ever, 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 did I say ever, ever think that there's any place in your life that is immune from his attack. Any relationship where you could say, oh, it'll never happen there. Don't ever think that. You've just set yourself up. I mean, keep in mind, Paul is writing not to the Galatians in the midst of their heresy. He is not writing here to the Corinthians in the midst of their loose living. He is not writing to the Ephesians in the midst of their worship of their pagan gods. He's writing to his beloved Philippians. And this was a need, perhaps the most mature of all those churches. This was clearly a need that had to be addressed. We are citizens of another city, and that demands a new way of living in this city. And the first thing that means is seeing the need for unity. But that's closely related to the second point, and that is the call to courage, because we have to stand and stand together. Not alone, but stand together. So let me go back and read a little bit what we read before, but go a little further now. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Okay, this call to courage. Paul is speaking of opponents. Who is he speaking of? What kind of people is he speaking of? Well, clearly these are not the same as he has spoken of, that he has written of earlier there in um, verses 12 through uh, 18. These are not individuals within the church who are causing trouble, as Paul is having to deal with there in Rome. These are folks like he had to deal with about a decade before in Philippi outside the church who, I'll, I'll put it this way, are in the arms of the love of the world and all that it promises and all its fleeting pleasures and therein stand opposed to the claims of the gospel. Passively and actively, standing opposed. Now, how does Paul say you are, we are to respond, they were to respond 
to such folks. Well, positively, we can say, as we saw in verse 17, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Negatively, we could say, as he picks up in verse 28, not frightened by anything. Now, I understand that that language can be used of horses when they're spooked. Not frightened by anything. Or another way that image could be used is um, not as an army that panics at a certain point in the flow of the battle and then turns and races pell-mell across the fields in retreat. Not frightened by anything. And as we do so, as we respond with this call to courage, hearing and heeding this, it will serve as a double sign, a double sign, first to those who are opposing the gospel, and secondly to us, those who are standing for the gospel. First, in terms of those who would stand opposed, it stands as a sign of judgment. Because where else really could the strength come and the unity come and the humility and the love and the conviction come to stay the course but God? And so over time, maybe in this life or maybe in the next, they will come to recognize where that power came from and who it was they ultimately were opposing. Not just followers of God, but God himself. So that the first sign would be a sign of judgment, but the second, to those who are standing firm, to those who are not being frightened, but hearing the call to courage, it is not a sign of judgment, but a sign of assurance. If we're so wrong and out of sorts with the world, perhaps then we may well be right with God. Maybe that is a positive thing. It's a sign that courage, that unity, that love, all that, that, comes with, that comes with that is a mark of our belonging to Him, of His work going on in and through us, even now it having begun. A sign of assurance. Okay, so a call to courage, facing the opponents, a double sign then is given. Paul, though, before he wraps this up and then bridges into chapter 2, throws one more thing out there. Sort of a, by the way, which is a reality check for us. Verses 29 and 30. With everything that he's said thus far, you know, he's mentioned opposition. He's using battlefield imagery. He's uh, spoken of the need not to be frightened by anything. And he's about to talk about suffering. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had now, and now here that I still have. Paul is saying, as you stand for Christ, as you heed and hear this call to courage, suffering is inevitable. It's going against the grain. It's going upstream, up the hill. Just as it was for him, as he alludes to. They'd, they'd seen it. Go back and read Acts 16. They'd seen what he had experienced. My goodness, he was experiencing then, as he's writing this letter. They're in prison. They're in Rome. They're on, about to be on trial. It's inevitable. Because it's, it's like a, 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 what, a clash of worldviews, at the least. But beyond even that, beyond it being inevitable... 
That sounds too passive. If you really pay attention to what Paul is saying here, it's not just inevitable, it's intentional. It happens with intent. Paul says, and this is so jarring, he says it's been granted to you. It's been, another way of saying that, it's been given as a gift to you. Suffering. Suffering for Christ's sake has been given as a gift to you. It has been granted to you. Now, how can that be? Just as surely, and he says this as well, just as surely as believing in Christ is a gift, having faith in Christ is a gift, so too is suffering for Christ is a gift. To be marked as his own is the holiest of privileges. To bear the name truly Christian is the mightiest of honors. But even going further, how this is a gift. Being marked, identified with him, but also in the course of the suffering, of the, facing that opposition, being forced into greater dependency upon the one whose name we bear. That is a gift. As our grip on the hopes of this world is loosened and our hope on him is tightened. That is a gift. We don't like to think of it that way, but that's exactly the way Paul phrases it. Uh, again, so this new way of living demands a call to courage. It reminds me of Mulan. Yes, it's true. The Disney movie, and, and, and it was watched, the sequel was watched in our home the other night, and I wasn't even aware that that was going to be happening when I wrote this out. So there you go. Here's a well-placed illustration, I hope. So um, Mulan, you may know the story. It's actually based on an ancient Chinese legend. Uh, the Huns have invaded China. Roughly based on it, I'm sure. Um, the Huns have invaded China. The emperor decides that we need to prepare for war. All the families need to be geared up and ready to go. Mr. Fa, the head of the household of Fa, uh, is determined, though he be elderly and though he be infirmed, to put on his old uniform again and go to battle leading in the, you know, as standing in for the family. Um, the fact is, though, he's too weak. Um... He may remember well what it was like, but he's physically, he can't do it. His daughter, Mulan, can see this. She, on the one hand, I think, well, it would seem admires her father's bravery, but at the same time, I mean, she has seen him go through the motions of a sword battle and seen him collapse on the floor in pain. And so she resolves then one night to sneak into the bedroom and put on her father's uniform and grab her father's written orders and ride off to join the army. Do you understand what's going on there? That's a Christ-like image. Her willingness to die for him. That's what she's doing there. She's showing her willingness to die for her father. That's courage. Now there's two, two aspects of courage, though, going on in, in that story when you think about it. One is Mr. Fa. And we need to consider this. There are times when the thing that we need to do is clearly too much for us. The task is too great and we are too weak, but nonetheless we are called to stand. 
Also, though, with the girl, with Mulan, again, that is a model of Christ-like love as, as he, as he, for us, if you will, put on our uniform, took our orders in hand, and went off not just to fight the battle, but knowing he was going to die in the battle for us. And then now we are called to live that out, to, to love one another and live with one another in a way patterned after that kind of sacrificial living and loving, but not in a fatalistic sort of, well, I guess I'm just going to die kind of way, but with the hopeful confidence and assurance of knowing that this one who calls us to go off into this battle goes with us. He won the battle. He won the battle. You see, that the gospel doesn't just demand unity and courage. It makes it possible. It does demand it, but it makes it possible. It enables it. As we keep this message before us, and I need to keep this message before me to bind up my own weak heart, and you need it too. I need to hear this message again and again and again. Richard, you are so flawed, but you are so loved. You need to hear that. I need to hear that. We need to hear that. We need to say it to one another. You are so flawed, but so loved. You understand how that makes the unity and the courage possible? You are so flawed, but you are so loved. All right, let me wrap this up. Philip Nolan, I left you hanging. A man without a country. How did it turn out for him? Well, the judge's sentence was carried out to the letter. Uh, he was, in fact, sent into exile, never to return to American soil. Uh, he was a prisoner on the high seas from ship to ship for decades. Uh, no sailor ever mentioned to him any mention, any update. He had a map dated 1807. And sometime, I think it was supposed to be like, you know, in the flow of the story, like March of 1863, his map, he thought it was current, but it was so outdated. All the territories that had become states and all that, but no one could tell him. No one could talk to him. Nobody. Even the newspapers were censored. So over the course of time, he becomes sadder and sadder, but wiser and wiser. Desperate, desperate for news. There's, there's one incident in the story where he pulls aside a young sailor and pleads with him this way, Remember, boy, that behind all these men, behind officers and government and people even, there is the country herself, your country, and that you belong to her as you belong to your own mother. Stand by her, boy, as you would stand by your mother. You see, deprived of a homeland, deprived of citizenship, he is slowly and painfully learning the worth of his country. Of, of belonging. Here's the epitaph he wrote for himself. In memory of Philip Nolan, lieutenant in the Army of the United States, he loved his country as no other man has loved her, but no man deserved less at her hands. It's not a happy story, but it's one worth reading. 
Paul's writing to people in Philippi who are Roman citizens. That was a big deal. It was no small thing to, to have the, the right to appeal after our trial, to, uh, to be freed from certain imperial duties, to be exempt from certain types of punishment. That was no small thing, especially in that time, in that place. But it was not everything. Paul is speaking of a greater citizenship, of a greater city, of a greater king that has made us his own. At great cost to himself. That we would not be exiled, he was exiled. That we would not be cut off, he was cut off. That we would not be abandoned, he was abandoned for us to bring us near to make us his own, that we would have all the rights and privileges of heaven that he does, our king. We are citizens of another city. That demands a whole different way of living, living in this city. In a whole, how could it not, right? How could it not? Ours is to then live lives worthy of the gospel. You could say a credit to the gospel. You could say in line with the gospel. You could say shaped by the gospel, empowered by the gospel. My friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are this morning a citizen of another city. Let's live that out. Let's pray. Lord, help us to Never forget to whom we belong and where. May we ever remember and cherish who we are and how this came to be through the love of our King. Oh, would we indeed grow in living out this admonition, this command to live in ways worthy of such citizenry to serve you, Lord Jesus, and others as an expression of that, to represent you everywhere we go, in every conversation we have, to look to you and lean upon you, to stand together as one, side by side, firm, courageously, and determined, longing for our King's return, assured of a day when he is going to reclaim and renew all things. May it be. Amen.